Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with the head of the geospatial support unit at the United Nations World Food Program, Rohini Swaminathan. So you might be wondering why the United Nations Food Program might need a geospatial support unit. And without giving the entire story away, I think I can safely say it starts by monitoring the entire world, trying to understand the risk of sudden onset disasters and what that might mean for the local population. Before we get started today, I want to tell you about a marketing experiment I'm running with OpenCage Geocoder. So from time to time, you'll hear ads on this podcast episode, a lot like the one you're listening to now. And so OpenCage have brought a bunch of these ad slots on my podcast. But instead of asking me to talk about them and their geocoding services, they've given these slots away to interesting projects based around OpenStreetMap. So the project I want to highlight for you today is OSM Before After Maps. So this is an online tool that allows anyone to easily compare how a particular area looked like in terms of OpenStreetMap data at two different dates. This is a side-by-side visual comparison. So, so the way it works, go to a website called beforeafter.bato, that's B-A-A-T-O dot I-O, and you'll see an interface. So you can choose an area, I can name the map, and I can say, and I can choose a year I want to compare the current map against. And then you have to enter your email, your name and your email and push the big generate map button. And what happens then is it sends you a link to this. <laughs> so you can compare these two areas side by side. Really interesting project, well worth checking out. And again, that's beforeafter.bato, B-A-A-T-O dot I-O. And of course, there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Welcome to the podcast, Wahini. Thank you very much for joining me today. Really, really appreciate it. You are the head of the Geospatial Support Unit for the United Nations Food Program. I, I realize the official title is maybe a little bit longer than that, but if we could stay with that, that, that would be amazing. So yeah, welcome to the podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself to the audience, please, and, and perhaps letting us know how you got involved in geospatial? Thank you, Daniel. This is a pleasure to be here. And my name is Ruhini. I originally come from South India. And as a kid, I was always obsessed with Atlas. So I believe it began there on why I got involved in geospatial in the future. Growing up in South India, natural hazards were everywhere around us, floods, cyclones, and especially the tsunami of 2004 that influenced me a lot to think about a career in this field. Once I finished my engineering school in India, I went to grad school in the U.S. and I uh, worked on research a little bit with NASA Develop for around three years where I explored a lot more on what is the potential of Earth observation, satellite remote sensing, and how do we use this for social good. And eventually, I found my way into disaster management, which was the most interest I had at that time. And once I found the application areas within the United Nations, I slowly found my way to the World Food Program. Well, okay, so we covered a lot of ground really quickly there. Can you give us a, a, a little bit more of a background in terms of your, your education? So you talked about geospatial, you talked about Earth observation. What is it that you were doing in there? Like, were you down in the weeds programming stuff? Were you looking at just the potential of the data? Were you analyzing it? A little bit more about your background, please. So I did my bachelor's in geoinformatics engineering, which gave me a good breadth of different applications, different technology within geospatial science. As we know, it's quite vast and it could be used for many application areas. So eventually I narrowed it down when I went for my master's in geomatics engineering to think more and more within the satellite remote sensing. And my biggest interest was always in Earth observation. 
to use satellites to see, to learn, to understand more about how humans influence the world. And my personal interests also were in understanding climate change and deforestation or all the different development and humanitarian issues that the world faces today and how geospatial science could be used within this spectrum. In my early days in geospatial tech, I explored a lot of different application areas like environmental science, for instance. How do we track after mining applications, how deforestation and reforestation, a lot of biological applications as well. And eventually, I worked quite a bit on disaster management. From disaster preparedness to emergency response, there are diverse applications that we can do with GIS and especially remote sensing. And now I focus more and more on sudden onset disasters like floods, earthquake, tropical storms, anything that happens at a large scale. We immediately do not have a lot of information about that particular crisis. And within 72 hours is a very crucial time in order for us to enable the most evidence-based information we can provide for disaster responders on the ground. And geospatial tech, the combination of remote sensing, now more and more the use of drones and GIS becomes the perfect solution that we could look into to give this evidence-based information as quickly as possible. Well, when you ask for more details, you definitely get them. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so, so help me sort of connect the dots here a little bit. You're the mm-hmm. head of the Geospatial Support Unit, United Nations World Food Program. You were talking about the, using this for sudden onset disasters, for emergency response. Join the, the dots for me, please. Geospatial and World Food Program. How do those two things connect? So we start way before a disaster happens. We focus more and more on disaster preparedness these days. For example, we do monitoring of the entire world together with our early warning unit, trying to understand how bad a cyclone season in North Indian Ocean, for example, is going to be this year. And we cover this for different hazards. So even three months, six months before the expected hazard, we start preparing ourselves to the best we can. So in the geospatial support unit, majority of work we do is in collecting this basic data set. And we are talking about it globally from anything like admin boundaries, airports, ports, roads, warehouses, where food could be stored, and all the basic information, we start updating and collecting them. And then we use risk analysis at a sub-national level. So at an administrative boundary one, like region or district level, we start to understand how many people would be exposed to each one of these hazards. So we get an idea of how many people the World Food Program might have to prepare for in this context. So all this happens at a regular basis, but when we have a risk raised for a particular context, then we will start looking more and more into that context. And in case of cyclones or floods, two weeks or three weeks before it starts happening, we will start issuing warning. We have an advanced disaster analysis and mapping, in short for ADAM, a system that issues these alerts globally for any countries even before something happens. So if we see a tropical depression is forming, we already start issuing the alerts with projected paths to see how many people might potentially be impacted within the storm's path. And we continue to monitor that until the storm passes. As soon as an event passes, now we move to the response mode. From preparedness and early warning, we have already collected enough information, but oftentimes it's hard to predict completely exactly what the impact is going to be. 
And I, that is the majority of work my unit does for the World Food Program. We try to use all the available information, satellites from different countries, drones, if that is available to be deployed locally, ground data that could be collected with mobile data collection. Any means we can collect data, we gather all of them and integrate them to give a holistic picture of what that potential impact of every disaster looks like, which in turn will help guide our country offices and regional bureaus to deliver the much needed food aid as quickly as possible. So the unit goes from preparedness, early warning to response, and then we do this all over again for the next season. Oh, this is great. I'm so pleased that you offered that little summary at the end. I mean, you are so easy to interview. This is ridiculous. I want to jump back a little bit, though, because you talked about like um, gathering the, the, these base layers and maintaining them. For a lot of us, this sounds like work that, that should have been done a long time ago. Is it just a matter of taking down the standard layers you know, from the shelf, putting them in the system and, and running the analysis? Or is there something more going on when we think about collection and maintenance of, of this kind of, in quotation marks, base layers? We would think that most of these layers should be available, right? But unfortunately, that's not the case. Even Google Maps or OpenStreetMaps will not be updated in most areas where the World Food Program operates. WFP currently operates in 123 countries around the world that most of the challenging context you would face. So we are talking about complex emergencies of Afghanistan and Somalia and many remote rural areas where logistics is not feasible by any other means. In these cases, there are many several programs in the past have five years or 10 years that have come up to map almost all of the world, but it's still not fully mapped. Even if it is mapped, it's not gathered and coordinated in one single database that could be easily accessed. So at the World Food Program, we currently maintain these global data sets for almost all the different layers from all the possible sources. So we don't do the layers ourselves, collect the data ourselves when it is not needed. We rely on partners to be able to provide, but we gather them, clean them, and keep them in a way which is quickly accessed during response because we will not have any time to do this once a disaster strikes. And earlier in the conversation, you talked about using these layers to calculate risk. How at risk is is a population? So I understand this from a physical perspective. When we think about the the terrain, for example, like how much land is going to be flooded, for example, how big is the geographic area that's going to be affected by this hurricane? How do you understand preparedness from a population standpoint? How prepared are these people to cope with with, with this risk? Because my guess is this must be a part of your risk analysis. Precisely. We continuously conduct a lot of vulnerability analysis. We have a dedicated unit for vulnerability analysis and mapping, which regularly conducts survey in person, through mobile phones, through online data collection tools in multiple different ways. And our hunger map gathers all this information and using certain machine learning algorithms internally developed, try to assess what the food insecurity of the population at any given day looks like. Currently, this is fully functional for 36 countries, and hopefully we will be able to expand that. So that's one of the main source of information we use to understand what the food insecurity of the population itself is like. And the second thing that we want to know is where are these people? Where are these people physically located to be able to get to them? And where would they potentially be displaced to? Because in order for us to deliver food at the last mile, we also need to know the displacement during a hazard as well. 
And for this, we rely greatly on partners. And um, I don't think it is completely available because we still struggle during major emergencies to be able to locate this and understand how much were the people prepared. But due to the sudden onset, how much is the food insecurity increasing right now? And this is one of the most challenging questions that needs to be answered. We are still looking into improving the methodology we use. It's uh, nowhere close to be perfect. And most of the time, we do the best evidence-based information we can. But that's largely a work in progress to to be able to estimate that. So I'm not sure if you've covered this point before, but I'd like to sort of make sure people understand this and that I understand as well. So you collect these huge global data sets, clean them, run analysis on them, create these risk maps, and this is all part of your, your early warning system. What happens when a disaster strikes? Because just before you talked about this idea of the last mile, is your organization only involved up until the point like, hey, there's a problem here? We can see there's a problem coming to that warning system. Or do you carry on and help with that last mile delivery problem of the food or the services or the resources that need to get to the people? And, and if so, what, what does that look like? It largely depends on the context and the country we work in. In most of the countries, we work with implementing cooperating partners on the ground. So World Food Program doesn't go up until the last mile because you can imagine how significant the scale of these operations in many countries is. That being said, there are contexts when it is not possible to reach by any other means. So we would still be involved in the food delivery, uh, even at a district or regional level. And usually there are many means by which World Food Program does this. So we have our own humanitarian airlines, the UNHAS network. And there are also fleet of ships around the world and um, thousands of trucks and uh, even donkeys in case of Nepal earthquake when we have been able to get food delivered only through donkeys. So irrespective of what that means is, the idea or the ideology, what the belief we work by is we need to reach the people in need as quickly as possible by any means. So we explore all the available options within the current context. And in almost all the cases, we work very closely together with the host government because ideally the end goal is to ensure that the host government has enough preparedness, early warning within the institutions that they would be able to take this up. And we have seen this happen in many, many countries. India is a great example where now emergency responses, the need for international agency to come to uh, the country is very low and rarely happens anymore because the capacity of the government has been increased so much over the past decade or so. In terms of your work with the governments of these countries, are they able to do this work themselves? Like, do they not have like a process, a system, an organization that's looking at this kind of thing as well? In most cases, yes, but there could be disasters which overwhelm the local capacity, in which case the government can request the World Food Program for assistance. Okay, so you're running this global sort of warning system. Is it you that goes and knocks on the door and says, hey, Look, there's a problem ha- problem about to arise. Are you ready for it? Can we help? Or do they look at your warning system? Are they paying attention to that and say, oh, look, this is coming. Can you help? So it works both ways, depending on the relationship with the government and the scale of the disaster itself. But most cases, we alert, providing a heads up, especially to our country offices, which work very closely with the government. And most of the responses is organized together with them. So the early warning alerts we produce, especially our ADAM alerts, are all public for public use. And we closely work with our country offices to ensure that we as a World Food Program is ready to be able to respond if the government asks us to join the response. 
And this is done not just by the welfare program, but all the UN agencies and NGOs combined together for major responses. So I think by now, people listening to this should have a good sort of overview of what you do. Obviously, we've glossed over a lot of detail, but I think that the sort of general template is there for for how the system works and a little bit about the, the role of geospatial in it. Over the last few years, seen a ton of innovation in this space. When you think about geospatial, when you think about Earth observation, we, we can start using words like machine learning and AI. Have you seen some of that innovation trickle down in, into your work? Can you use some of this machine learning, some of these sort of automated processes in, in the things that you're doing? We constantly keep an eye out on the new innovation coming out. As you see, technology evolves so rapidly. Every month there is a new program, a new algorithm that we could be exploring. At this moment, machine learning algorithms are still largely in the research and development phase. And there are a couple of times we tested it out very recently, especially last year, to assess what the functional operational requirements of these algorithms could look like. I cannot say that this is fully functional yet, but I can definitely see in the next few years, this will be the normal thing we do. Right now, there is a significant increase in the amount of data sets that is made available for us. For instance, um, with the advent of CubeSats, we have more and more almost everyday coverage of high-resolution satellite data. And it is getting to a point where it is almost impossible for somebody manually scrape through all these gigabytes or terabytes of data to be able to uh, analyze and report what the impact looks like. So we are investing heavily to better integrate machine learning algorithms into our workflow, but this is not 100% functional just yet. Whenever we talk about innovation, I always try to distinguish them between the fancy, more attractive side of the innovation versus the boring side of innovation. And you can imagine some of the contexts where we work in, even a single text message might not go through when the communication lines are down. So these situations are extremely challenging for us to be able to think about how do we deliver one of the most complex technologies that the humankind has with all these Earth observation satellites and machine learning algorithms into a very simple paper map that actually can be used during the in the midst of the emergency response. And this has been a process that we have improved over the last 10 years, and Wolfer Program has invested heavily on integrating it. So as we stand today, geospatial technology is no longer a luxury that we can think about, but it's a necessity that we have to continue to integrate and institutionalize in the system. More and more evidence-based information are required to be able to efficiently reach the people in need. And it is impossible to ignore how important it is to continue investing in research on this field. I really like that idea of fancy versus boring innovation, because it, it seems to me with the kind of work that you're doing, you need things that work, like the boring stuff. I know this is going to work. I, I don't want to run my algorithm and hope that it's going to work. I, I need to know it's going to work. And I guess when I make my map, my paper map, and email it to whoever needs to get on a donkey with some food and go to a place, then I want the whole thing to work. And I, I guess you want it to be boring. And I also think that a lot of fancy innovation, if we can use that term again, is dependent on the context. Like where was the algorithm designed to work? On what data was it trained? Is it designed to look for a house that's broken in New Zealand or Germany or Canada? Or is it designed to look for a damaged piece of property in in Pakistan, for example? 
Yeah, and I think these are probably very different problems to solve. Also, in terms of access to technology, are we assuming that the end user has you know, 5G capabilities in their phone and access to that, that technology where they are? And yeah, so I think it's a, it's a really interesting idea, this fancy and, and boring innovation as you talk about it. That is a great point you raised as well on labeling for this machine learning algorithm, right? Most of the times the training data sets are generated for countries where it would work, but it might not recognize huts in Mozambique or the slums in Kenya where we need to get more information from. So we are investing currently in a very interesting project, even at a personal level for me, is to train local workforce to train these algorithms. So currently we are running an innovation project where we got few of the beneficiaries in a slum in Kenya, and we trained the local workforce to generate more and more training data sets with high resolution data, but for their region, because they know the context better. It is still experimental, but this is one thing that we would like to build on. And currently we were able to build it for 10 countries for three hazards, and we would keep building it on and make it globally available. So more algorithms can continue to extract this training data set and train their models. It is my hope that eventually there will be a functioning one that we can easily integrate and operationalize even in the field. And WV has made excellent efforts to be able to innovate in this area. Hopefully in a couple of years, we should be able to do that. Could you just give me an idea of what that training process looks like? Is it you know digitizing as we know it? Are people looking at satellite imagery, looking at drone photos and yeah, drawing around objects and saying, this is a house, this is a perfectly normal house, this is a damaged piece of property. Precisely. So currently the training process is very simple, uh, basic categorization of looking at a building to one, categorize it is a building because sometimes it might not look like one for us, and then have these three different categories if there is no damage or partially damaged or fully damaged, which would in turn give us an idea of potentially how many people might have impacted based on the household numbers we have. And eventually that needs to be translated into how much food we need to prepare and transport to, de- to be delivered. So there are a lot of links from this basic point we are starting with to the end result of where it will be consumed and used. So um, buildings, that they sound like they're a proxy for the population size. Are there any other sort of physical structures or physical objects you can use as proxies for population size and, and maybe also thinking about how prepared that this population is? Uh, the main proxy currently we are looking at is building. We also do a lot of damage assessment of croplands to better understand what food insecurity in the near future could look like if croplands has been impacted by the disaster. There are several other points of interest for us that we particularly look into. For instance, WFP runs a school feeding program. So it's not only humanitarian response on a general, regular, average day. There are a lot of uh, school feeding program within the country, which comes under our program activities for long-term development. And if a sudden onset disaster happens, how many of those school feeding programs or WFP's regular activities would be impacted and in turn, what that indirect impact to that population could look like. So we do try to analyze the damages to warehouses, um, schools and hospitals, any of those particular point of interest that would have a long-term impact for WFP's operations. So I'm not sure if you mentioned this earlier in the conversation, but but how long have you been doing this this kind of work? Uh, I have been doing this for the last 10 years. Sounds like it's been a long time when I say it like that. 
But for the last seven years, I've been working with various UN agencies, uh, not just WFP, but in a similar humanitarian workspace. How have you seen this, the, the processes that you use, the, the data that you've got available, the technology that you use, for example, how have you seen that change over the, over the last 10 years? I think the main change that I notice is in the way geospatial technology is perceived by the people who uses it. In the last 10 years, the technology has improved a lot, but it has always been good enough. We always think the issue could be the lack of data, but that has also significantly increased from base data, hazard-related data, all the information that we need. So currently, I don't see the challenge to be in the technology or in the availability of data, but in the understanding of what this could do at the last point where it needs to be used. And that has significantly started to improve, especially in the recent past, in the last few years. If I can summarize it to see 10 years ago, even GIS as a word, as a, as a phrase was not well understood and it was something really far-fetched. And most of the humanitarian agencies thought of it as a luxury thing that could add value. But currently, as soon as a flood happens, the recent flood in Chad or Pakistan is a good example. The first immediate request is to get geospatial-based evidence information that could be used. So the knowledge and the awareness that people have has improved quite a bit. That being said, I think there needs to be a lot of work in that space even to improve further on the limitations of what this technology cannot do. That is often misunderstood. So that, that's really interesting that it's, you feel like it's moving from this nice-to-have to, to a must-have. You know, talk a little bit about the, those limitations that you talked about. That what uh, do you see people trying to force you know this geospatial round peg in, into a square hole? Sometimes is that what you like, trying to use the technology for things that it's not designed for or not well suited to? Sometimes it's possible that people's expectation on what this technology could do is more than what it can actually do. Satellite data is a good example. Of course, we have a lot of satellites, Earth observation satellites that could readily be used during an emergency response. And through the International Disaster Charter, many space agencies will donate their satellite information. So we do get them free of cost and at a very rapid speed on where we need the information to be. But oftentimes what happens, Pakistan is again a good case to think about when the event is as massive as the flood in Pakistan, the satellite imagery coverage might not always capture the whole extent of what the disaster looks like. So I believe there needs to be a lot of research in understanding how various satellite data that overlaps by time and space is combined in a way it gives the holistic representation. And one other thing that is often misunderstood is the limitations of optical imagery itself, right? Right after a flood, there is going to be a lot of cloud cover, and we rely more and more on radar data, which comes with its own challenges. So for us, as a technical unit, our job is to translate these technical difficulties, which normally most of the people wouldn't be able to see it. Uh, of course, the difference between optical or radar imagery is not something people might be aware of. And to translate it in a way, where are the gaps and where do we need to invest more in research to be able to fill those gaps? Drones is another example where it is often overestimated in its potential. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of drones. I have, I have a drone pilot license myself. But what happens during a massive disaster is its limitations in how much area it can cover and how fast that 
area covered can be processed. And those limitations are often overlooked when we think of the use cases. So sometimes, not always, it is the case that either the person making the decision might lose interest because of these gaps not being explained well. So one of the things that we are trying to invest is to identify those gaps and see how we can work with academic institutions, research institutions around the world to fill in those gaps. Yeah, I think this puts could put people in a in a difficult spot sometimes. Like, so it almost comes down to like, do I overpromise what geospatial can deliver and then overpromise and under under deliver, or do I underpromise and over deliver? And I, I think there's you know. Uh, it's difficult for me to say exactly which is the right one. How, how do you cope with that? Because you're in a position where I guess you're saying, "Hey, we can help with this stuff," and but but we can't do everything. How how do you communicate that to the, to your end user or to the, the the people that you're seeking to serve? How how do you walk that that balance? That part is definitely one of the challenging part of my job right now. We try to be as realistic as possible in the way we send our products and way we translate our products from the geospatial tech, the maps and the fancy dashboards to plain English. One other thing that is a challenge is also be honest with ourselves because we love this technology. We see as this as the holy grail of solutions it should be. And first of all, that's where I start with in being honest with myself saying, There is only so much this technology can do, and it needs to be added with a wider picture, especially qualitative analysis, which should not ever be overlooked from people on the ground with vast knowledge on what has happened in the past. And it has to be integrated with all the other sources, such as social media or media, which we are looking into more and more as well on how best we can integrate it. And the technology should always go with the context instead of being a standalone product. And it's still a work in progress. I will be the first one to admit that. And we are still piloting many different approaches. And we are learning a lot of lessons from every disaster we respond. And there is not a lack of disasters, unfortunately. And it is a continuous process, which gives us a lot of information and a feedback back to us to see how we can continue to improve this. So with this kind of work, you work on a lot of disasters and you're constantly thinking about people suffering. Is this an exciting space to work in or is this a depressing space to work in? Is it overwhelming? How do you feel about working in these like disasters with humanitarian problems like this? It's all of those things at once. I think in a single day, I probably would go through all of them. To be honest, I'm one of those people who are annoyingly excited on a Monday morning to come to work because... You know, deep down, whatever you're going to do today is going to be making an impact. Even if it is just a dent of an impact somewhere, you're going to contribute to that bigger picture and you're going to find a way to do the best you can to support. That being said, every morning I would read a report on what are all the things that went wrong in the world. It could be the conflicts in Ukraine. It could be updates about an earthquake and how many people might be impacted or a tropical storm. So you're constantly bombarded and you're constantly traveling to these hard, challenging locations as well and seeing how difficult it is for people. At a personal level, I couldn't be thinking of doing anything else with my life. I absolutely love the technology. I love the impact it has and the meaning it can bring in the operations that we do. And I try my best also read and compensate as much as I can in the positive sphere on all the positive things that the United Nations do. And sometimes I try to tell people, 
who think of all the challenges that the United Nations is not able to tackle. I am personally one of the success stories of the UN itself. As somebody who was born in a remote rural area with no access to clean water or schools, to be able to make it out of that context is what the UN was made for. It was not a success story of one person or one family. And to me, to be part of that system, to make that difference is quite exciting. So yes, on an everyday basis, you do go through a lot of challenging, depressing moments, but you always come out of it with that excitement saying, your life, your, your the tools you're using, your time is going to be more meaningful by working in this space. So again, you are the head of the Geospatial Support Unit at the United Nations World Food Program. So the head of support unit. So so that tells me that that you have that you have a team that you are that you have people working underneath you. What qualification skills are are you looking for when when you hire people or when you look to add new members to your team? Are you looking for really really deep technical understanding? Are you looking for people that have a broad knowledge of all of these things and can put the pieces together? Are you looking for great communicators? What do you look for personally? We have an incredible team at the Geospatial Support Unit. Of course, I would say that. Our profiles are quite diverse. We have from mappers to analysts to GIS developers to communication specialists, all put together under one umbrella to be able to make a product that could be as wholesome as possible in making it the most useful at the last mile. That's the end goal of it. So one of the main skills I look into people, especially for the younger generation to think about is improved understanding of the application itself. So I do get a lot of profiles where they are incredible in the understanding of GIS, the technology side of things, the data. But more and more, I'm looking at people who will also be able to understand the context and how this technology can be used, what are the applications we can produce and challenges we will face and how do we address them and how do we communicate them. And that's always the challenging part as we come as a GIS, a technical focal point into a humanitarian space, which is incredible, but also very challenging to be in. And you have diverse profiles of your end users that you would have to deal with. So our team is the bridge between the technical and the data world to the more operational and humanitarian world. And there is a running joke that always connects them as suits to boots in a way to explain how do we go from there to the field, to the end user. So one of the main qualifications I look into people right now is that passion. How much do you care about the humanitarian world? How much does it impact you as a person? When there is a cyclone coming in, I need my team to think about what is the best I can do? What is the most I can do with this technology that I can bring in? And that passion gets developed in multiple different ways, either through working in NGOs or volunteering or getting your hands on by doing on your own, taking some data sets to try to understand how it can work for earthquakes while it might be able to work for another application. I know I'm covering a diverse range of skills and I'm uh, looking for a 360 degree profile all the time and it's very challenging to find sometimes, but If there are young audiences listening to this podcast, that's one place that I would ask them to invest in is ask themselves the question, what makes you angry? And I always tell this to younger people now, if not being able to respond effectively to a disaster in 2023 makes you angry, then you are a best fit. And if you have some GIS skills, you can come work with us anytime. That question of what makes you angry 
And United Nations has put together the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, which is not only disaster response. So it could be any of the application areas, and GIS finds its way in most of these use cases. So if there is any of those makes you angry, I think that's where your passion is, and that's how you can turn what the technology can do into that application area. That is a really interesting take on it because normally people say, you know, follow your passion. What what are you really inspired by? What do you love doing? <laughs> <laughs> and you, you flip that on your head and say, well, what makes you angry? <laughs> I think it's brilliant. So I, I, I want to round off the conversation a little bit now and we've come a really long way and you've given us a ton of insights. If we had to look at the work that you're doing today, look at how geospatial technology is deployed w- within your organization, what is the biggest problem that, that you are facing? So oftentimes people think it's a technological problem, it's a cultural problem. Ah, we need this kind of software. We don't have access to hardware. It's difficult to find people, talented people that understand how this stuff works and can communicate it out. It's difficult to keep up with all the with all the new technology and advancements. But yeah, so if I could take my magic wand up here and wave it and get rid of the, the biggest problem that you're facing today in your work, well, what would that problem be? There are several challenges, of course. Uh, it's it's never without challenges. I think the biggest problem or issue that needs to be addressed is in translating the highly technical jargoned products into something useful and usable and understandable by people with no technical background at all. That gap currently is the biggest gap that we need to address. I can give you an example in terms of early warning. Our systems in general for the globally, not just WFP, geospatial technology currently addresses so many different issues. If a cyclone is coming in, we already know even before it becomes a cyclone, we already know the path it might take. We already know how many people might be affected. But to be able to successfully translate this technical knowledge with the limitations it has to that direct person who's making the decision on the ground be it WFP country office or the host government or an NGO, is the most challenging part. It could be because of many reasons. It could be lack of trust they might have or might not have in the technology itself. It could be an issue of translation from numbers to something that is more usable that they can use because sometimes the products are so complicated, it is hard to understand. And that is a space where I'm putting my entire focus in. I'm actually doing a PhD part-time just on answering that question because for the last 10 years, I have not been able to find the answer for this question at all. And I do not believe the issue is any longer with the, the technology or the availability of data as much as the usability of these products. We have more than enough technology, technological tools that we will ever need at this point in time, at least. Of course, we will continue looking at and investing, and as the private sector improves it, we will continue to adopt as a humanitarian agency. But I think the most amount of work we need to do is how do we make our products, all these fancy, really great dashboards built with the best available tools humankind ever came up with, but make it usable at that moment when it is needed. Wow. And you're doing a PhD. So incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot. There'll be some people listening to this that think, wow, this person is amazing. I want to reach out to them. I want to learn more. I want to see the kind of work that they're doing. Where, Where could they go to do some of those things? The best part would be the UN Geospatial Network. So all the geospatial focal points within the United Nations are part of this network where we submit some of the projects and the updates that we do. 
if they ever need any data within the humanitarian system, most of the data are also freely available in the humanitarian data exchange that the United Nations has, which would be another part if the person is technical and they want to explore a little bit more on what we do. We are currently working on gis.wfp.org. So all the data that the geospatial support unit has will be also made available along with more information on the different projects that we are doing. And we will ensure most of the projects, if not all of them, will be public and open source as much as feasible. Wonderful. Wahine, thank you very much for your time. Really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Daniel. The pleasure is mine. This is just a quick reminder to check out before and after dot Bato, B-A-A-T-O dot I-O. So this is an interesting way of comparing OpenStreetMaps data from two different years. So if you go to the website, there'll be a link in the show notes, find your area of interest, give the map a name, and then choose a date to compare against. So this is the, this is the date you want to compare the current map against. You'll need to enter your name and email and push the big generate button. In the background, the system will go off and create a, a web map for you and send you a link to that. That's why you need your email. It's an interesting idea, it's an interesting project, and it's worth checking out. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Rohini Swaminathan, head of the Geospatial Support Unit at the United Nations World Food Programme. As usual, there will be a few links in the show notes of this episode, so check them out, including a link to the World Hunger Map, which, which is pretty interesting. Okay, that's it for me. That's it for this episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. I'll be back again soon with a new episode. I hope that you'll take the time to join me then.